This is a download from News Talk 106 to 108. To download other programmes or for more information, go to newstalk.ie. And good morning. As Queen Elizabeth turns 90 this week, we thought we'd ask, what is it like to be old? In a modern world, is it a golden age of better health care, longer life, the joys of being a consumer in a world of leisure, or is old age about getting sicker, poorer and surplus to requirements in a youth-obsessed world? In studio, Ed Kelly is the former of the Third Act, an organisation redefining old age. Porik O'Moran is a mindfulness coach and writes the That's Men column in the Irish Times. Barbara Scully is a writer and broadcast and Dr. Colin McRory is a researcher with TILDA, the brilliant longitudinal study of ageing in Ireland. So if you're old, tell us what's good and bad about it. 53106 for 30 cent and at Talking Point NT for tweets and hashtag NTFM. And I'm going to start off with a few older voices. We asked some listeners yesterday, what is it like to be old? The word old doesn't resonate with, with most old. We, we also still think we're teenagers. And once you're lucky enough to be healthy, you really don't think you're any different than you were 30 years ago. So you mightn't do things as quickly, but you, you do them smarter, you know. So you've been around the block a few times, so you, you sort of know what's coming up, so it's it's easier to handle things, you know. You have less pressures on you because, I mean, your family are growing up. I suppose years ago I would have considered perhaps that I would be retiring in my mid-60s, but um, the concept of uh, traditional retirement, um, I think, no longer exists for me. Um, and I see this as a new beginning, a new opportunity to do new and um, developmental things in my life. At some level, I see opportunities in life that I think, oh, I would like to have done that, or that maybe they're not um, as available to me. I think that there is still a perception in society that people in their early to mid-60s are um, beyond doing certain things. And uh, my view of it is that I'm not. I still believe that I could... Um, do lots of new and exciting things in my life. There's obviously ups and downs with everything. And uh, I would, uh, an old uncle of mine said to me many years ago, I, I was young enough for it to, to be to be impressed by it, and he said, I wish I could be 19 knowing what I know today. And we all would wish that. Uh, that said, with the, the, I think the gains that age have brought for me, at any rate, are worth the price that I've had to pay. I wouldn't go back to what I was uh, at, at 20 years old, or, or 30 or 40, maybe 50. And, and, and I suppose you could say that I look forward to growing old, older with some trepidation. I think you'd be foolish not to. Uh, it's not going to be easy peasy all the way. There's no doubt about that. I would, I suppose the thing I would. I would say is don't be afraid of it. Accept what you are. Accept what you are, says Michael Carraher. And before that was Liz Early and Jim Blake. Uh, Porico Moron, what's it like to be old? What are the best bits and the worst bits? Uh, well, uh, I'm, I'm tempted to say I don't know, but I suppose I do know. <laughs> and um, I actually don't go around wondering what the good bits and bad bits are. To be honest, I just get get on with things because I'm one of these people who will be on working until he uh, drops, uh, which is fine. That suits me perfectly. Um, but I think that you uh, gradually, I suppose you you think this might be an illusion now. You think that you've learned some things from life, or that you can take a more um, easygoing attitude to things. 
but uh, I'm not on the, so that's one one side. On the other <laughs> side, I'm not a hundred percent convinced that older is necessarily wiser. It depends. I've met some older people who are actually quite stupid really about <laughs> things. Yeah. I haven't learned anything that I can see in their lives. Um, so uh, it's very hard to say. The, the trouble is that when you start categorising people as an age group like that, I don't think it works because uh, you've got all sorts of different people in different circumstances, different personalities, different genetics. Um, and I don't think it's very hard to make sweeping statements. I mean, obviously, in, in research and so on, you can make certain statements all right. But it is very hard to categorising people um, just in the same way that you can't make people make sweeping statements about teenagers, for example, many of which turn out to be wrong in the case of huge numbers of them um, or about middle aged people and so on. So that's one. But we, we tend to group people. I mean, that's our nature. We group everything anyway. So we group people into into age age and categories. What about the process? Um, you know, was there a, a decade or a time where you realised this thing is coming and I can't stop it? How am I going to deal with it? Or did you just gradually trundle into I it? I probably cared more about it in my 50s than I do now. Mm. I'm in my 60s now and um, I don't really care that much about it. I would probably have been busier, have more energy now, I would say, than I did then. Um, but I probably cared more about it then. It's like seeing the shadows creeping across the field towards you. Uh, but eventually they get there and you're OK. So I think it was that. And it's quite interesting that if you look at... Um, if I'm not mistaken, I think things like suicide rates, you'll find at one of the peak times is sort of 50s to mid 60s. Maybe that is a time when people feel more, more, you know, nervous mm-hmm. about things in general, if I'm right about that figure. Um, and uh, so I think that often the anticipation of things is far worse than the thing itself. Mm-hmm. And the, the kind of, 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 of picture that we get in society um of what it's like, what old age is like, then scares people. Um, so either you're told you're going to be you know, terribly weak and frail and unable to do things, or else you've got to go off and you've got to climb Mount Everest or something to prove that you're all right. Um, uh, so maybe those, that picture kind of scares people. And generally speaking, they're, they're just images, you know, they don't, they don't actually mean anything. Um, they're just made up things. Uh, but uh, so you've just got to go through these things to find out what they are like. Barbara, um, how are you going to approach uh, the prospect of old age? Thank you for sparing me. What do you, how do you feel? (laughs) Uh, Question. Um, Well, it's interesting because I'm in my mid 50s and um, uh, myself and a lot of my friends are at the age where we have elderly parents, parents in their 80s and possibly in their early 90s. And it's one of the things that does, I mean, it makes me very angry, but it also on a personal level deeply disturbs me when I look at how we treat our older people and how we treat, how we approach care of older people. Um, And I mean, you know, we all came in on our own and we're all going to go out on our own. Um, So I have a tentative arrangement with a lot of my friends that at some stage before we get too decrepit, we're all going to sell up and maybe buy a kind of house that we'd all have space in to be, you know, private and be on our own. But we could all come together and to hell with the migraines. We're going to stock it with a lot of alcohol and possibly other illegal substances. Like a commune or something. Like a kind of a commune, yeah. And go out in a kind of a haze of complete kind of um, inebriation before confusion sets in. Oblivion. Uh, Oblivion sets in. One of the things that I worry, I suppose, about in in relation to my own mother, and actually you mentioned the Queen in your introduction, if I want to really wind up my own mother, who's 81 and is wonderful, a very very engaged woman, um, 
very in- involved, but her health is is not great, and she has a myriad of health issues. So she's she's she'd be r- fairly disabled. She she can't walk very far. She's a heart condition. She's lost the sight in one eye. Blah blah blah. But she'd love to do more. Um, and if I want to really annoy her, all I have to say isn't the Queen great? She's 90 and look at her. She goes on these tours. She's lucky. She's just lucky. Um, And she's right. She says old age isn't for the faint hearted. And I think in Ireland we make it even harder than it should be. How so? Because like at the moment, as I say, she has these um, uh, health issues. And, you know, last year she had a particularly bad winter and I wanted her to come and, and move in with me. We had the space to do it and we could, you know, adapt the house that would suit her. And I felt she'll be there where I can mind her. I can, you know, make sure she has her breakfast, lunch and dinner, cups of tea whenever she wants it, blah, 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 blah. She wasn't having any of that. Uh, she Why wants, not? Because she wants to stay in her own home, which I fully, when she sat me down and explained it to me, I fully understood. I mean, we all know if you are away, for example, and you become ill with just a bad flu or whatever, the only place you could be staying in seven star luxury. Mm. All you want is to be at home in your own bed and in your own place. And it's very important and it's very important to her. And I fully understood that. So she's at the she's at the point now where she's trying to make she's had a, a no tea out recently and make adapt make um, adaptation adaptations mm. adaptations adaptations yeah. to the house in order to make it safe for her she's in danger of falling she's had two knees replaced and with her eyesight and her heart she would be uh, um, um, you know very much in danger of falling and she's so she's trying to get a stair lift in and and you know um, handles and grab rails and all the rest of it and she's trying to apply for grants for that at the moment which would keep her in her own home and presumably out of a nursing home or out of a hospital And the system is set up to make it as difficult as possible. The forms that have to be filled in, the phone calls that have to be made, the probing questions, and I don't want to get into her own personal story, is just unbelievable for an elderly person, very often as she is on her own, trying to find their way through this um, absolute maze of nonsense, which I think is set up purely to defeat you. Um, something we've talked about before in relation to childcare was that one of the unintended consequences of feminism was that it was the women were looking after the young and the old. Mm-hmm. So the creche and the nursing, the nursing home, home has had to replace that work at uh-huh. vast cost. Do you think we've gone too far and that more oh, families think... should be like you saying to their parents, <sighs> just move in with me. You don't need to go to a nursing I home. Would, I would be, I, I hate people who, who tell people how to live their lives. But I do think that the whole um, system of nursing home care, and I've watched it because in a previous life, I worked for the Alzheimer's Society for 10 years, back in the 90s, in the early 90s. Um, and it has gotten worse, I think. Number one, our attitude to older people. And number two, the government's hands-off approach to nursing homes where they have stopped providing state nursing homes and they have relied on the private sector, which means that we now have a system of nursing homes for our elderly population who are uh, which are run purely on a health and safety basis and on an efficiency basis and don't provide a home environment as far as I can see for an older person and are absolutely outrageously expensive. I am no economist, but to me charging somebody 15 to 1600 euros a week mm. in Dublin for a nursing home bed where most of the staff who will look after you are paid minimum wage 
I don't understand that. I don't understand the economics of that. Somebody's making a large profit. I also, you've got me on a hobby horse now. Yeah. I also think the whole um, system that we have set up about this fair deal is the most unfair thing that we have ever done. If we did that to a cohort, and Des O'Neill wrote about this in the Irish Times, Professor Des O'Neill, about a year ago. If we did that to any other cohort of people, in other words, people who have cancer, if we suggest you need care and we will provide that care, but we're going to take whatever the percentage is, 7% to your house and 20% to your assets in order to pay for that, there would be ructions. Why do we think it's okay to do it with our older people? It's not. Hmm, Ed, Kelly, what do you think about that? Well, I think as you're just seeing one of the consequences of human longevity. You know, you're, we're now living 25 years, 30 years longer than our great grandparents. There's, there's this whole new third age, third act in our lives. What so, does that mean? Well, it, it just means that so, so over the last 150 years, we've been adding two and a half years per decade. So now we've got to the point where, you know, average life expectancy in Ireland and in other parts of the developed world is around 80. Well, you know, it was around 40 and started the Industrial Revolution. So there's been this incredible change. Two thirds of those who've ever lived over the age of 65 are alive today. So you're all talking about old age, but you're, the, the old age is not what, you know, we institutionalize it at. You're not old at, at 66. Porek's not old in his 60s. You know, you're old perhaps now in your early 80s. And by the time we get there, we'll have added about another five or 10 years to it perhaps. And we may actually be on the cusp of something revolutionary in terms of how long we live. So, Is that a good thing? Well, that's a different, that's a different question, Sarah. I, I'm, I don't know about that. <laughs> but what you can say is that half the babies born in the last 10 years will celebrate their 100th birthday. So you're going to have, you have this concept of the 100-year life. So the, the, the idea that you would retire in your, at 60 is, uh, you know, retire comes from the French verb retirer, you know, to withdraw to a place of safety and seclusion. Well, you know, you're not, you're not, most people of, at 60 are not up for that. They have, they, they want to grow and develop themselves. So I actually totally agree with Porik about that nervousness that occurs for a lot of people in the 55 to 60 because this, you know, Young said that you know you can't live the afternoon of life based on the program of life's morning, and so there is that massive shift, and it's a, it's a it's a tsunami not just of occupation, it's a tsunami of meaning, it's a it's a it's a it's a search for. What's going to underpin me now? Yeah, and phase? on that, uh, Park reviewed a book uh, last year by Lewis Walpert. You're looking very well, The Surprising Nature of Getting Old. And the author himself said, um, there are also, I regret, times when I wonder what the point of continuing to live <coughs> really is. Mm-hmm. So meaning in life when you are older, what do the people that are coming to your conferences and events saying about that? Well, they, they, they're quiet. It's humble. You know, it's it's not that same strong sort of lock and load, command and control, drive ahead, set the goals, live it out. It's much more reflective. It's much more emergent. It's allowing. It's beginning to explore something beyond them, you know, themselves. They're beginning to let go of the illusion of separateness. You know, they're beginning to connect into something else. So, again, it's, it's a sort of Jung talked about the four big stages of life, you know, the athlete early on. He, these weren't the terms he used, but others have used them. You know, uh, you know, might, you know, you're, you've got teenagers. You know, a teenager, you know, can't pass a mirror without having a looking good dad. You know, <laughs> you know. Then there's the warrior stage out there in the world. You're achieving, competing. It's very tough, though. You know. Mm-hmm. Then there's a lot of people coming into the third act where they're coming to a more statesman-like phase. They want to look at something beyond themselves. What can I give back? What can I contribute? What have I learned? 
But then, you know, Jung talked about the, the, that last phase with the spirit stage where you begin to, as Thierry de Chardin said, you know, you begin to real, begin to consider whether you be uh, less of a human being having a spiritual experience and more of a, a spiritual being having a human experience. So you're into this very different phase of life. So I, I'm some of the, the people we're coming across are in the, into those second statesman and spirit more spiritual quest. We've had a couple of texts. Bob says if you have money in your old age then you are fine and I think Cahill might have a lot to say about that and another texter says I totally concur with your guest. I think they mean Barbara. 15 years ago in the Netherlands they were working on keeping people in their homes and community as they are healthier and happier. It's not rocket science and it's also less expensive in general and you can text us for 53106 for 30 cent. So Cahill you're working on Tilda. Just tell people briefly what that um, study is and what have you found out about old people in <coughs> Ireland today. In the main, is it good to be old in Ireland? Okay. So the Irish Longitudinal Study of Aging is a, a study of aging amongst people aged 50 years and older in Ireland. Uh, we recruited 8,500 people and we follow their uh, social economic uh, history. We look at their health. We measure things like their walking speed, their blood pressure, their cholesterol levels, their BMI. And uh, so far in the conversation, we've talked about older people, how they can be apprehensive and they can be reflective. The thing that I see when I look at the data set is vigour. Older people have got this incredible vigour for life. And it it reminds me of the story of Pablo Castles, who's a a famous uh, cellist. And he was practising in his studio at 80 years of age when one of his students approached him and said, why are you practising? And he said, because I want to get better. And the idea is this is that we have continued growth in, in later life. So, for example, within uh, within the Tilda cohort, we find that life expectancy has increased. We've compressed morbidity into later life. So people are living longer. They're living with fewer diseases. And what we also find is optimism for the future. So most people are surprised when I tell them that within Tilda, quality of life increases from age of 50 up to 68 years of age, so it continues to increase. It peaks at about 68 years of age, so it's quite late in life, so quite late in the third age, and then it declines at a more rapid rate thereafter. So uh, what the data actually tells us from growing up in Ireland is most of the people are feel like they're ageing well, uh, they feel like they've got good quality of life. There is some fears and some apprehensions for the future as well, and some people have alluded to this today. So, but I think this, the generally the idea that people continue to grow is something that we'd like to emphasise. Yeah, that book uh, by Lewis Walpert that Porrick mm. reviewed, and mm. um, he says that happiness peaks at the age of seventy-four. So why why are they happier? Well, th- see, so this this brings us back to the, the four different life stages. So if we think about what ageing actually is, ageing is the kind of the biological changes that occur in your body as you age. Okay? And that's a very simple way of saying it. But there's kind of four stages that refer to it. So the first stage of your life is kind of growth and development as you grow from a fetus to a peak attainment, about peak <coughs> physical maturity at about 21 years of age. Then what we tend to go into is a second stage of life is whenever we start to have children, get married and raise families uh, and work. The third stage of life then is kind of post-retirement. And uh, the fourth stage of your life is when you're about 80 years plus. So I think what actually happens in the post-retirement phase is people now are starting to look at this vista that's opening in front of them. They can expect to live 15 or 20 years post-retirement. 
and at this stage they probably have raised their family they probably are a little bit more secure uh, in terms of their income and things like this here and all of a sudden they haven't left work commitments behind they can look forward to the future so this is an opportunity for them to grow and then for them to develop and I think that's part of the reason why life exp- or sorry why quality of life tends to peak a little bit later in your life and you know in the median that you know People often talk about vulnerable pensioners and, um, you know, that pensioners are at risk of poverty and that generally they're a, very, they're a worse off constituency. So is your research um, saying, no, that's not quite true, that they're doing OK in by and large? I guess the, the research uh, tends to show that you, like any section of society, we have a substantial proportion of uh, older people who are uh, in poverty or at risk of poverty, and particularly things like fuel poverty as well. But we also have, the same as any other section of society, a substantial proportion of older people who've paid off their mortgages, um, who are financially secure, who have good pensions, so they're doing pretty well in life as well. Michael has texted to say he's into enjoying his third midlife crisis. Um, <laughs> um, the, just we were talking before we started about though the politics and baby boomers and um, that they're seen as doing really okay, whereas us second agers are still struggling away. Tell me a bit about that. So, so this is a this is the idea that's come to the fore most uh, recently in the US and the UK, and it's the idea of intergenerational conflict. So, this is the conflict that, that exists between generations about the distribution of resources. So, any population or any government only has a finite distribution of resources, and it's about how we distribute those resources as our population ages. So, that brings a lot of tensions with it. So, David Willits in the UK has wrote a book about the baby boomers and the baby boomers if you're if you're out there in your home and you want to figure out what generation you belong to a baby boomer is someone who was born between 1946 and 1964 uh, we refer to the generation Xers as people who were born from 1965 into the early 1980s and then the generation Yers are the millennials are the people who tend to be born between the 1980s 1982 and then uh, thereafter and the idea that Willits put forward in the book is that uh, the baby boomers uh, arrived at a, a stage in human history where they benefited from uh, good jobs, jobs for life. They benefited from f- free third level education. Uh, they benefited from better pensions. They benefited from really good health care. And then his argument has been that after doing that, they pulled up the ladder and they made it more difficult for generations coming thereafter to get on the housing ladder and so on. But I think this disguises considerable differences between groups because, of course, we know there's a substantial proportion of older people who still live in poverty. Uh, we know a substantial uh, proportion of older people who don't have secure housing. And I think the idea of um, conflict between the generations isn't helpful. Essentially, what we need is solidarity between generations because if younger generations oppose uh, benefits or entitlements for older people, in some ways we're kind of stealing from our future selves because mm. mm. if any luck, we'll all get to age. That's what um, we're all keeping our fingers crossed for. <laughs> and we'd like to age in dignity <laughs> and we'd like to age in place as well. Yeah. OK, look, I have to take a quick break. When I come back, I'll be talking to Michael <laughs> O'Regan about that political intergenerational conflict, which is interesting. They're back in a few minutes after these. Talking Point on News Talk 106 to 108. 
and welcome back to Talking Point. We're talking about old age this morning. In studio, Edward Kelly is the founder of the Third Act, an organisation redefining old age. And you're having a conference this Tuesday, 26th, yes. in the Royal College of Physicians. And you can find out more on the thethirdact.ie. Is that <laughs> right? Sure. Okay. Uh, Parika Moran is a mindfulness coach and writes to That's Men column in the Irish Times. Barbara Scully is a writer and broadcaster. And Dr. Colin McGrory is a researcher with TILDA, the longitudinal study on ageing in Ireland. I always want to say longitudinal, you know, <laughs> There's no first T there. Um, some text. Celine, who's 19, says the idea that I could live until 100, I think, means a lot of people in my age group are more relaxed about what they want to do with their lives yeah. because mm. there's so much time. There's enough mm. time for two or three degrees and stuff like that. Mike and Limerick says, Sarah, I hear on the radio in the future there will be no state pension. This is the worry. We have to keep voting for it. <laughs> They'll need something big to abolish the state pension. And then we have had a couple of callers, too, who are not looking forward to old age and who are, of quite depressed about it so just want to read out the Samaritans 24 hour number it's 116123 116-123 and Michael O'Regan is on the line now he's the parliamentary correspondent with the Irish Times good morning Michael Uh, good morning Sarah so Michael we were just talking there before the break about intergenerational conflict um, you know particularly towards pensioners you know you've seen at first hand the political power of pensioners will you describe it for us it's quite strong. By the way, uh, Sarah, that uh, Home for the Bewildered, uh, talking about politicians, which um, Barbara referred to earlier, and it's a long-term plan, it exists. It's based in Trinity College. <coughs> currently. <laughs> yes, it is. And, and the promise again, house. <laughs> uh, the first step in gaining admission to it is you have to be elected to the Dáil. <coughs> uh, but, yeah, 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 there's huge power within the so-called grey vote, um, uh, in the sense that that generation tend to vote more so than younger people. Uh, they also tend to be that bit more organised, I think, in the sense that obviously many people at that age are retired, so they would have the time to invest, we'd say, in going to a protest march. And we saw that some years ago uh, when they uh, had this major rally, which absolutely frightened the then government uh, about the withdrawal of some uh, medical cards. And uh, that government moved pretty rapidly to uh, dilute their mm. uh, measures. So they're hugely important. Uh, I don't think they get any special treatment, by the way. They are more articulate. I I think that uh, the collapse of the Celtic Tiger meant really that um, for the the young and the older, I think, took a a huge hit. Now, obviously, people in in other age groups took a hit as well, particularly people who had bought property a house uh, at the height of the Celtic Tiger and had young children and that. And of course, all the young people who are to immigrate. But they're, they're a hugely powerful political influence. And every budget that is being drafted, Sarah, the mm. Minister of Finance of the day and the government of the day, pay particular attention to the reaction of the so-called grey vote. And, you know, there were, I suppose, great political moves down or bad ones down through the years that are still remembered. Who took a shilling off the pension, I don't know, 50 years ago? And then everybody always praised Charles Hawhey for bringing in the free travel. You know, those things that were done for old people um, got great symbolism in Irish politics, didn't they? Uh, that's right. Uh, and that li- that lives on in the folk memory. I mean, Ernest Bly taking a shilling off the old age pension, still quoted, well, quoted yeah. recently. Uh, I, I remember talking to um, a senior civil servant uh, when the late Brian Lenehan was drafting his first austerity budget after the collapse of the Celtic Tiger. And I said, how's it going? And he said, pretty awful. He says, um, the one thing we have to avoid, he says, is um, doing something that will live in the folk memory uh, for 
decades. And of course, he mentioned Ernest Blyde and the shilling off the old age pension. But you're right, Sarah. Uh, uh, the other side of that, of course, is that um, uh, uh, the introduction of free travel by Charles Hoy, his Minister of Finance in the late 1960s, is remembered as one of the positives and indeed one of the final interviews which uh, Charles Hawhey gave before he died was to um, uh, a student uh, and it was literally days before he died and he, he uh, the student asked him you know did he felt he left any legacy and he said the most letters he got positive letters were from people thanking him for the free travel so one uh, which by the way in, in, in relative terms hasn't cost that much at all well now Barry Kenny at Irish Rail might disagree with you there it's it, cost oh, well, them a well, fortune well he would wouldn't he <laughs> yeah. I say if the trains ran in time we'd listen more to what Aaron <laughs> <laughs> Rod Aaron have to say but uh, if you think if you think of the money that was wasted at the height of the Celtic Tiger, actually the cost of free travel, uh, which will be of huge interest to people like Porrigo Mora and myself in a matter of years now. Uh, uh, you know, it was, it, was, it, it was, in terms of social value, uh, it, it was probably one of the best things done for the so-called grey vote. Yeah, but is it fair? Because I get the train from time to time and I get on my train and it is filled with older people who've all had their hair done and have nice clothes on them and don't look particularly poor. And I'm thinking, you know, did these people really make out like bandits on the back of the rest of us? Ah, now, Sarah, any time I met you, you had your hair done and you were wearing nice clothes. (laughs) I believe in keeping up appearances at all costs. (laughs) No, I I think that's unfair because I think... um, I also think, by the way, that if you reach that stage in life, you have made, by and large, by and large, you've made a contribution to society. Mm -hmm. Uh, And if you think that the current so-called grey vote, uh, I mean, they would have been... They would have come through difficult decades. I'm not saying this, this decade has been particularly awful for most people. But uh, uh, if you look at, we'll say, the people in the 50s who had to immigrate, perhaps, or, uh, you know, who... Um, uh, and they had the 80s, the recession of the 80s. That was a tough one. They, they, yeah. they had, and they had the recession, of course, the terrible 50s, the temporary upswing in the 60s, the, the oil crisis of the 70s brought a recession, then they had also the 80s recession. So they've been through a lot. And to, anecdotally, I think that... Um, just referring to the free travel, uh, uh, people who use it, they tend to use it off peak times just for the comfort of gaining a seat. The other thing, of course, Sarah, is if you look at these statistics uh, put out uh, by that marvellous organisation, Age Action, they've estimated, by the way, one of their statistics is that almost 100,000 p- older people uh, live in um, or experience deprivation. I, I think, I think uh, that... Um, with some older people, that deprivation mightn't be always that obvious because they may be housebound a lot. Mm. So I wouldn't, I, I, far from saying that they've, they've been indulged by successive governments, uh, I, I wouldn't agree with that. I do think, though, I do think, from a practical political point of view, that all political parties, and particularly the government of the day, keeps a very, very close eye to the grey vote because they, they tend to be articulate, they have time to protest, and they vote most of them vote, which, of course, for politicians is a huge factor. Michael O'Regan, thanks a million for joining us this morning. Um, Porico Moron, what about that tension between the generations, <laughs> you know, and that sense of, well, we lived through hard times, so we're entitled to this. What do you think? Uh, well, that? I don't think that the idea that we're entitled to things necessarily has to translate into tension between the generations. I would say that older people maybe look at younger people today and note that younger people often find themselves in crap jobs 
with uh, no occupational pensions and with less of a kind of a safety net than we had. And that's something that I would actually feel a lot of uh, empathy, if you like, or sympathy, whatever the word is, for younger people over that. Um, I don't think that um, if... uh, So I don't think that necessarily... uh, there is that conflict there. Mm. Uh, I think but there's But sometimes more do you think maybe as well do older people who did live through like the 50s, the 40, the 30s, 40s, 50s in Ireland was really, really poor. And I know once I heard my mother saying, you know, this is nothing. What we're calling austerity is actually nothing compared to what they witnessed and they experienced themselves. So maybe we're a bit coddled in ways. Well, that we? could be so because thinking to, to, to my mother's generation, she died last year at 91 and her generation of friends and so on, they were, so they lived through what we would regard as tough times. Yeah. But yet they're, they're, they're pretty assured sort of people, you know. They were they were basically, I would say, were, were they stoic? Were they more stoic than we were? Had they more yeah, resources? Probably, yeah, they were probably more stoic. They had lived through enormous, massive change. There's so that a huge difference, I would think, between those previous recessions, which were very tough, and I think people yeah. were stoic. Yeah. But the big difference now is debt, yeah. is the fact that people who went through and were hurt in the last recession Absolutely. are carrying forward debt, which wasn't a feature but of the again, previous recession. But again, was that um, our own fault? And when I say our, I mean our generation, that that the older generation, and someone has said, uh, will I stop referring to them as if the elderly are a different species? Well, Sorry that if was, I'm doing that. That was the other point I was going to make. <laughs> yeah. We're talking about whether things are fair or unfair and between the generations, it's like as if we're all static. <laughs> you know, we're all stuck in our generation and we're never going to move on to the next one, um, yeah. you know. To, so to debate whether the the free uh, travel is 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 fair or unfair is kind of mad because but we're all going to be entitled to it when we get there, and if we're all lucky enough, we will get there. So how can it be unfair? Uh, Carl, I might put this one to you about the debt and our different approaches to finances. Um, <clears throat> You know, were we stupid to go around using credit cards and building up debt? And maybe our parents had a better attitude. You saved up for stuff, you know, and you only spent what you had. And that that's what we should have learned from them instead of now complaining (laughs) that they're okay and we're going to have mortgages till we die. I guess in some ways people, when they talk about intergenerational conflict, it's important to remember that older people in this this country have had more of an opportunity to build up assets over time. So if they have more of the wealth, it's because they've been working longer to earn that. Mm. Um, but I think it's also important to acknowledge that the contribution that older people are making downwards to the generations as well. So, for example, within Tilda, we know that one in three of our older uh, women within the Tilda cohort are providing uh, grandparental ch- care to their children. So they're actively helping. We also know there's intergenerational transfers of money downwards as well. So they're making a contribution to, to that It's nearly half. Well. Half. I saw one of your papers and uh, nearly half of your cohort are directly helping out their children with financial transfers of one kind or another. Um, I'll read out a couple of texts and then I'll come to you, Ed. Um, uh, Let me see now. I work in a nursing home in the West where the majority of our residents are from isolated rural areas where they don't see anybody from one end of the day to the next. I would like that lady to come visit us before going on radio expressing opinions based on an experience from 20 years ago. It's easy to kick the nursing home sector. This is you, Barbara, time and again. And I find myself ashamed to tell people what I do, even though I get such satisfaction from caring for older people. This is 
is a direct result of the constant negativity portrayed by the media. I wasn't Barbara. I wasn't intending to kick and certainly not the people who work in nursing yeah. homes who I have huge respect for because I think that the work they do is terribly important. Yeah. I think they're way underpaid. But I do have an issue at private nursing homes because somebody is making a big profit. Yeah. And that's the thing that really bothers me. But I also think that we could, and this is no reflection on the staff, it's the culture and the way that we have, that nursing home care has evolved in this country, is that it, it doesn't represent a home for a lot of people. They are run, as I say, I have a friend who is a major nursing home and two things she said to me which really, you know, struck home. She said, once you go into a nursing home, you'll probably never see a kettle again. You'll probably never be able to make a cup of tea or make a slice of toast again oh, for yeah. your whenever you want it. That's one of the most comforting things that you can do in your own home is a cup of tea and a slice of toast. The other thing is you'll never have a lion again very often. You know, you'll be up and dressed and out because it's good for you. So it's regimented. It's regimented. Ed, um, we were talking during the break and you were saying though one thing older people have is time. Well, no, I, I wasn't even, mm. I don't even use talk about older people or age because where are you thinking the third act is all about opportunity and it's a response to somebody's move the cheese. You know, human longevity has created a whole new third act for people in their lives. And it's an expansionary period in life and it's full of opportunity. Mm. It's that time. OK, there is time. There's time to become the kind of person you always hoped you would become, to do the kind of things you always hoped you could do. So not surprisingly, in the US, the fastest growing percentage of entrepreneurs are coming from the 55 to 65 age group, not the 25 to 30, you know, the 35. Mm. Now, OK, they're not setting up Facebooks or LinkedIn or something. But they're doing things that they wanted to do. So we find people coming and in those quiet moments, they, 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 they almost search back into their first act in life and say, what gave me joy? You know, what gave me excitement? What gave me that schools out feeling? You know, mm. and how can I bring that back? So they're not worrying about or talking about all the things that society needs to do. Of course, society needs to change and it will in time. And I believe there is that tension and rightly so, because the dependency ratio in society is going to create that tension. If you have too many young people and old people drawing off the people in the middle, it's going to create a tension. What about voluntary <coughs> work? I know at home I see um, older people doing fantastic voluntary work, a lot of it with younger people. Yeah, yeah. Um, in Summer Hill, there's the <coughs> third age group where uh, Mary Nally started up, where older people were teaching immigrants English. You know, yeah. it was a really brilliant Charles uh, Handy has this notion of a portfolio life, you know, that people coming into the third act can create this portfolio life, which is a mix of, OK, I need money to live and I should be responsible for doing that. But I want time also to do volunteer work. I want time to be with my family, you know, to help out with my family. I want to be engaged. I want to be involved. I want to be connected. I want to be also independent, as Barbara's talking about. But I want to contribute. I want to be connected. Are we guilty of always measuring people in terms of their economic productivity? That's our value to society. Look, yeah, perhaps, uh, yeah. you know, I think that's less so. You, you, you talk about how it becomes a much more collaborative sort of period in life where people want to connect in a different way. They're less, it's much less competitive. So they don't feel so concerned and connected to the economics. Joan has texted, uh, texted Sarah, your commentary, old people in free travel is very short-sighted. Hotels and cafes where we support when we travel are sure glad of the free travel. You, you, you young lot think you're deprived if you don't have a few foreign holidays a year. <laughs> well, actually, that feeds into a point I was making that I think maybe we have been too Molly coddled. My parents weren't running around on foreign holidays when we were growing up, you know, and now if we don't get a holiday, we think life has come to an end. <laughs> I'll take a quick break. We'll be back with more after these. 
Talking Point on News Talk 106 to 108. And welcome back to Talking Point. We're talking about old age this morning in studio. Ed Kelly, Porrick O'Moran, Barbara Scully and Colin McCrory in 53106 for your text for 30 cent, please. And an avid listener says, I'm 65 and only now have time to focus on me and not feel guilty. I have to admit, I'm looking forward to that. I'm also looking forward to not having to dye my hair. I'm really sick of that. Um, there should be more independent living, accommodation cottages built. And what about yes. retirement villages, says yes. John Jay. Uh, another barber in Dublin says, my father-in-law, when 88 and still working used to say that he wished he was a young fellow of 75 he lived till 94 and another texter says intergenerational conflict this one no one is entitled to anything pensioners may have earned their benefits but 20 and 30 somethings dull jockeys have not they demand their entitlements without ever having made any contribution um, Porik Moran in that uh, Walpert book that uh, you reviewed there was a really interesting uh, thing about how those who view ageing as a positive experience lived an average of seven years longer. So this means that having a positive image about old age had a greater impact than not smoking or maintaining a healthy weight. Well, I suppose it, the thing about attitudes like that, it's not there isn't something magical or mystical about them. I suppose it is that if you have a positive attitude, you maybe are more likely to do the things that keep you healthy and you might be more likely to be connected with other people. That is a big, big, mm. big thing for health mm. of all kinds, connection with people. So you're more likely to maintain that. Um, so I think a positive attitude towards ageing is just so huge. Actually, on that people. keeping connected, I remember um, talking to the people at Third Age in Summerhill, Mary Nally's group, and they were saying that women did so much better. If if the wife died, the man was left very isolated and worse off because it tended to be the wife had the social networks, not the men. Yeah, women are kind are, are really the experts at connection. There's no doubt about that. And again, observing say my mother and her friends and group and so on. They would have been um, when she was alive. They, they um, that connection was there all the time, and they were going and during the cult, during the recession, they were going to these great deals and hotels and all this, and going to yeah. places. Um, I think yeah, men probably are not as uh, are not as good at that, um, and so you find att- attempts, things like the men's sheds and stuff like this, to get men to. To, to, to sort of be connected with each other. Women seem to do it a bit more naturally. Yeah, probably perhaps. men would have done it when they were playing sports and then if they don't exactly, keep that yes. up. Yeah. yeah. So Cahill, yes. what does Tilda tell us about things like that? Or what's what's the outstanding thing from Tilda that Tilda that you think um uh, is about old age today in Ireland? Okay, so so we did a study recently actually looking at the effect of social connectedness on your heart rate. So this is how many beats per minute your heart beats at. And what we actually found in this study was that for men who were highly socially connected, their hearts beat four minutes, four beats per minute more slowly than someone who was socially isolated. And the idea of this is that being socially isolated is inherently stressful. And that's the reason why the heart beats more rapidly. For women, it didn't matter actually what size your social networks were. The heart uh, rate remained fairly constant. So we concluded from that that social connectedness was particularly important for men, but they were the ones that tended to engage in it less. So I think things like the the men's sheds and stuff like this here are great for men to be actively engaged. Um, Ed, you know, you were talking about how, um, you know, people who are getting older can actually be great entrepreneurs and that sort of thing and still have a lot to give. But I think a lot of people would complain about ageism. You know, when they're at work, you know, they feel now that they're being pushed out and younger, cheaper people being brought in. Look, this yeah. is this is a real a real issue. And it, it's a consequence that, you know, 
people have to, the organizations have ne- haven't caught up with the reality of what's going on. So we're going to have uh, th- this. This will slowly change, but I think it, you know, uh, it is a problem. Uh, I, I don't know what the solution is. We were one of the things we were looking at doing as part of the third act is to set up a third act effectively a recruitment and placement organization for people 55 plus. Now, you mm. can't say that because that's ageist. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the thing is that there are all these people coming into retirement and 70% of them are saying they want to continue working. Now, they don't necessarily want the same hours. They don't necessarily want to do it in the same way. They want more flexible work, more portfolio kind of work. But this is going to be a reality. It's another logical consequence of the fact that everybody's, you know, that we have this longevity. So yeah, it's a it's a it's an issue. Uh, I think the organizations are behind. Uh, we'd be very interested to talk to organizations about uh, how we could change that and, and what we could do to, uh, in a sense, create this index of register of people who are available to do kind of short term contracts, specialized work who don't come with expectations of career advancement, uh, health care costs, uh, et cetera, et cetera. You know, so there's a, a whole new flexible workforce that are going to become available of people who are in their 50s, Barbara. 60s and 70s. Well, I think the ageism point is is uh, very well made. I mean, we all know that we worship at the, the, the altar of youth and fighting ageing is the thing we hear all the time, um, and which is the most ridiculous kind of notion ever. Um, and I think the recent commentary that I can't remember who made it um, about older people uh, kind of I mean, we've heard them being referred to as bed blockers in hospitals. Yeah. Um, and then recently there was the talk of older people in homes that were now too big for them. They should be selling up and, and making these homes available to families. And again, I'm struck by why. Number one, there's nowhere for them to go. Um, number two, it's very important, and I speak from my mother's experience, for older people, especially if they're on their own, to remain in their communities where they know their neighbours, where they feel relatively safe and where they have support in, you know, in a kind of an informal sense from their neighbours. And I was thinking, you know, we don't ever hear people saying, you know, uh, uh, you know, people who own big mansions and there's only two of them and they've 10 bedrooms should vacate those mansions in order but that people... But it is this attitude that they're a nuisance. These, yeah, that we have a they're totally wrong attitude to older people. Um, and I mean, I'm talking about, re, you know, as I call them, real older people, you know, people in their 80s who are gone beyond working, but who maybe need support and need our, our, our support in order to have lives that are meaningful because we're adding all these years to lives, but I'm not sure we're adding quality to that. So Actually, I think I'll go to Carl for the last word on that. Um, you know, this idea that, um, you know, how do we cater for older people? Have governments, despite the fact that they're so sensitive to the old vote, have they actually prepared for a country of old people? Uh, my view on this is no. Uh, quite simply, uh, many of the core institutions of the state have not been developed with the uh, future of older people in mind. For example, one in three older people, people aged 65 to 74, can't cross a traffic light in time. We can do simple things to make our communities simpler for them and more uh, so they can w- continue to live in place. Yeah, OK. Thanks a million, Carl. I'll just I'll read a few texts before we go. To suggest young lives are more important than older lives is crazy. It's suggesting that human existence is a coherent project with contributors of very value dependent on age. The world doesn't need any of us. Old age is not an illness. It's something that if you're lucky, you'll experience. So that's it for today. Ed's conference is on Tuesday, the third act. Find out about that. Thanks to Ed, Porek, Barbara and Cahal Bobby Kerr is up next. You've been produced. Thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to this Newstalk 106 to 108 podcast. To download other programmes or for more information, go to newstalk.ie.